This is the Wintrust Business Lunch on WGN. John Williams here. Pete Zimmerman's your producer. Mondays, we start the week with Elise Glink. You can hear her with Tom Fortino Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock. Pardon me, at 7 o'clock as they talk about the week and wealth. Let's talk about ChatGPT first. I'm surprised to see that pop up as a topic for you and me. How does that relate to your world, Elise? You know, it's kind of interesting, John. Uh, ChatGPT is, of course, the new technology being offered by OpenAI. Uh, it just kind of invents things out of thin air. It invents pictures, it invents images, and it invents words. And what's new and different, and the whole thing is new and different, of course, but what's new for real estate is that real estate agents have begun to use it to write their listing sheets. This is when they put the description of your house, if you're going to sell your home, they put it up into the web, they create, uh, fill out a whole different uh, form for it, and it can take about an hour or two for an agent to fill that out, write the descriptions and all the rest, and in GPT, it uh, happens in about two seconds. So I wonder how accurate those listings are then. I'll tell you, I I don't think, I've been testing it uh, this morning just on a variety of different things that I write about, you know, when it comes to real estate. And some things are very accurate, almost scarily accurate, and some things are just completely wrong. And it's kind of interesting because when you hear these um, AI experts, artificial intelligence experts talking about how there's implicit bias or how there's errors out there, what ChatGPT does is it scrapes the whole internet for information and then synthesizes it automatically for you and then it writes out whatever it is that you're doing. But there could easily be mistakes and, and agents are going to have to be careful who decide to use this. You know what it strikes me as? I've been thinking about this a lot lately. One of our listeners typed in, give me a paragraph about WGN Radio. We shared this with our listeners on Friday. It reminds me a little bit of what it was like when we all first got personal home computers 20 years ago or so. And then there was a dial up and you had to to get on the Internet. And then all the sites weren't there. And it was very slow. But guess what? We were doing it. It just wasn't very good. And we didn't realize how good or fast or accurate it can be. And I think we're there right now with ChatGPT. You go, wow. Look at this technology. It's amazing. Look what it can do. But you also know that it's sort of like you don't want to buy the first version of anything. This is not perfect yet. Yeah, it's a it's a great thing to point that out. I mean, you know, anytime a car has a remodel or a remake or a new, you know, new edition, you really just want to wait and see what the problems are, are going to be. Um, the thing with ChatGPT is it came out, uh, they were testing their free version. They've now attached some pricing to it. There's a whole bunch of different pricing schedules that are being offered to some people and different ones to others. You don't know which one you're going to be. It's kind of a big ABC test. But what is interesting, I'll just give you a specific example. I asked uh, ChatGPT to run down the IRS rules for a 1031 exchange. Those are, this is a thing in the IRS, which allows you to sell an investment property and then reinvest without paying taxes on your profits as long as the thing that you buy, the new investment property, costs at least as much as the old one. And there's some very specific rules around the selling of it and the timing with the buying and all the rest. Very specific. And ChatGPT got it 100% wrong. <laughs> Just completely wrong. But it read as if it was accurate. That's, I mean, the, it was that's, great. The, that's the thing. So <laughs> I'll, I won't read the whole thing, but here's 
Here's how it summarizes WGN Radio in a paragraph. WGN Radio is a WGN Radio is a radio station located in Chicago, Illinois, that broadcasts a mix of news, talk, and sports programming. That's so boilerplate. That's 100% accurate, but that's not too impressive, right? Um, it is one of the oldest radio stations in the United States, having first gone on the air in 1924. Technically, it was 1922, but there's a reason to quibble about that, so I won't worry about that. WGN Radio is also the flagship station for the Chicago Cubs radio network. No, we're not, and we haven't been <laughs> since 2015. And then it goes on to say, and the Chicago White Sox radio network. Nope. Oops. <laughs> that We split up with them a few years back. We operate on a clear channel frequency, meaning WGN Radio can be heard over a large area at night. That's true, but that's not all that revelatory. The station also streams its programming live on the Internet, making it accessible to listeners worldwide. That sounds like it knows what it's talking about. The next, There are two other sentences I, I didn't take the time to read, which are also completely, completely wrong. So it's... It's deceiving, I would say, right now. Yeah, it's it, to your point, it's not quite accurate yet. So anybody who's using this for business is going to have to make sure they're, you know, watching it and and it's there are no errors creeping in because you don't want to give yourself, as a business owner, any additional liability uh, by yeah. pr- having some inaccurate uh, information. It just would, it d- could destroy a reputation. Uh, there is bias in the training data. That, that is clearly the case. Um, and by bias, it doesn't just necessarily mean it's anti one thing or another. It just um, has certain biases because the Internet itself, the information out there has biases. And nobody's been able to quite figure out how to get a, you know, a system like this to recognize that the data is not right. fair or accurate. Well, so with Wikipedia... Remember when that first came out, we all said, oh boy, you're a fool if you trust Wikipedia. I completely trust Wikipedia now, maybe more than I should, but I don't get burned by Wikipedia. But you can also edit Wikipedia and fix it. You can manipulate it, but generally let's assume that Wikipedia leans to the truth. Um, There's no way to fix, to my knowledge, our guest last week said not yet, there's no way to go back and fix chat GPT if it gets something wrong. No, not yet. And there are some really smart people working in that world and trying to figure out how uh, there's a whole new burgeoning area called AI safety that uh, people are working pretty hard on to develop ways to make sure that uh, something like a chat GPT, and there's a couple of competitors out there are self-correcting yeah. that they recognize when they're making these sorts of errors. But, mm. you know, for business, it, it can be remarkably helpful. Um, and yes, it probably will end up replacing a few jobs, but it's going to create new jobs. Yeah, I think we always need to keep that equation in mind. We're talking to Elise Glink uh, and about realtors. I'm pausing now, Elise, and then we'll come back in a minute. But it would help them, if nothing else, to write that listing. The realtor knows the sort of truth of that listing. They can then, I presume, proofread it, but at least this machine will write the thing for them. And that does seem like a much more efficient way to operate, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. Why is Custodia on your radar, Elise? Goodness. So this was really remarkable. The Federal Reserve evaluates different applications to become a federally insured financial institution, right? So you want to be uh, have your deposits in a bank that's federally insured. That way, if something happens, your cash is protected, at least up to $250,000. Well, a company called Custodia applied 
And the Fed not only denied the request, they went into great detail as to why they denied it. And I thought it was worthy of just talking about this in light of what happened with crypto last year. So the Federal Reserve said that custodia was a special purpose deposit institution. It's chartered by the state of Wyoming, does not have federal deposit insurance. And what they are proposing to do is engage in, quote, novel and untested crypto activities that include issuing a crypto asset on an open public or decentralized network. And then the Fed goes on to say that the firm's novel business model and proposed focus on crypto assets presents a significant safety and soundness risk. The board has previously made clear such crypto activities are highly likely to be inconsistent with safe and sound banking practices. And it goes on from there. It says that their framework was insufficient to address concerns and no, they would not be getting uh, a federally insured uh, become part of the federal insurance uh, group. And and I just thought that was remarkable, John, because, you know, there are so many institutions out there that are starting to offer crypto, including Fidelity Investments. They, you want to invest in crypto, you can do it there. And yet day in and day out, we're reading about more crypto investments that are going bad and people losing tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. No kidding. I, yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. Boy, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to hear what you just said. Uh, speaking of the Federal Reserve, um, 25 basis points is, you know, somebody described that to me the other, over the weekend. They said, well, you know, the Fed's going to raise the rates again. And I, I, that's one way to put it. Another way to put it is they're only going to raise them 25 basis points. So to me, I'm encouraged by that. What's your, what's your stand? Oh, absolutely, John. You know, interest uh, interest rate rises are slowing because inflation is coming back down. Uh, we saw this at the end of the year that inflation had seemed to do a turnaround. It had come back from its highs. We're also seeing, um, even though there have been nine or 10 months of declining home sales, we actually saw a little bit of an uptick in mortgage applications over the last week or two because the interest rates have come down. And I think that's good news for anybody who wants to do something with buying or selling because really the real estate market has kind of ground to not a complete halt. We're not back at 2007 and 2008, but we are seeing things dramatically slower, maybe a third slower than they were last year. And so I think having the Fed get things more in balance is good. If we can get to that kind of softer landing where we don't fall into a recession, that would be good. Germany did announce today that it had... Uh, a negative growth last quarter. Uh, that was a surprise to a lot of people, and I'm sure it's weighing on the market today. I teased this segment by saying that m- single women own more homes than single men. Um, where did you get that, and is that true across the country? What's going on here? Yeah, this was really surprising to me, too. You know, single women have been the strongest uh, buyers of real estate for a while, but what I hadn't realized until the Lending Tree study came out is that now the balance between single women only owning homes and single men had flipped. And so women only earn, as we know, about 83 cents on the dollar for every dollar a man makes. And yet women, single women, own 2.64 million more homes than men across the 50 states. And believe it or not, Louisiana has the highest share of women, uh, sorry, homes owned by single women. I wonder what the 
What, what's going on there? What's the thought behind that? <laughs> Go women. I, I don't know. I, maybe it's affordable. Maybe women are starting businesses down there. I thought it was interesting that North Dakota and South Dakota are the states where single men, the only states where single men own a higher share of homes than single women. But that could be explained by, I think, the oil and yes. fracking and gas industry, right? Uh, well, I think there's a lot more men up there for one thing. Yeah. But if you assume that there's the same number of single women as single men, then and, and more women own their own homes, single women, than single men, then, you know, the guys get married and live with a family doesn't account for that. Uh, I don't know if those guys are living with their mom and dad longer than the women are. I wonder if that's it. I, I, I can't put a finger on that. Yeah, I don't know. It may also have to do with inheritance. So if you had <laughs> homes, I know this is kind of crazy, but we have trillions of dollars that are now starting to come down from baby boomers or the generation above the baby boomers. And it's entirely possible that... Uh, Women are inheriting those properties and women are single either because they're divorced, mm-hmm. right? So they, they may have gotten a house in a divorce situation or ah. they're divorced now and they're inheriting from their parents, their parents' houses. So uh, it's interesting to think about how this turn of events might happen. We know that women are living longer than men. Um, it's just fascinating to see it play out this way. How'd you and Tom Fortino get in trouble over the weekend? <laughs> You're going to love this. You know, some of our listeners apparently thought that we were recommending that everybody wait until age 70 to collect Social Security. And there there are great reasons to do it, right? If your full retirement age is 67, every year you wait up until 70 to take your Social Security, you get an 8% bump in your Social Security payments. But people, I think, maybe misheard that as saying everybody should wait. There are lots of reasons not to. And so you can listen to yesterday's show at WGNRadio.com slash podcasts or This Week in Wealth. And on Sunday, we're going to dive in at 7 a.m. and go through it because there are some very good reasons to take it at 62, right, when it's available to you. And there may be reasons and availability to take it even earlier for a few people. And for some, waiting is going to be the right thing to do. So we're going to parse through it all, John, on Sunday morning. 64% of consumers live paycheck to paycheck. There are some people who cannot afford to wait just as a day-to-day living expense. But you and Terry and Tom, I think, win on the math game. The numbers are better if you can wait. If you can't wait, then you can't wait. But Terry so encourages people to do everything they can because the, the money is so much better on the other side. And yet, if you're telling people to not eat, well, then they get offended. Uh, And I know neither of you are doing that. Right. I I think everybody hears things in a different perspective, a different way, John. You know, you see it through the lens of your own life. And, you know, if you're at home and you're struggling to make ends meet and this is going to help, sure, take it at 62. I mean, we don't want you to starve just in case you make it to 70. But. And for and, you know, but at the same token, if you think you might live to be ninety, you might want to wait. So there's some there's some plus and minus on both sides, and and we're certainly going to go through it. But obviously, it's all about where you are in your life and your finances. That'll be Sunday morning at seven o'clock. Elise Lincoln, Tom Fortino. Thanks for joining us, Elise. You bet, John. Jim Dalkey is a frequent guest, and he joins us again today. Hi, Jim. Welcome back to the show. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. It's funny because uh, sometimes the key is seeing the events in the moment and then anticipating what the business is that can sort of capitalize on that 
situation. And I think our first story is a little bit about that, this health tech startup. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, this is a company called Jupiter DX, and what they're uh, focusing on is long COVID. So probably have heard about long COVID, uh, you know, a percentage of folks who uh, contract the coronavirus have some effects that last a lot longer than those for who kind of dealt with COVID and it's gotten better. And um, this long COVID uh, is really kind of this chronic illness that can, you know, really debilitate uh, somebody's physical ability. And what Jupiter DX is looking to help folks kind of better navigate that really complex world and kind of help kind of gather data around your activity and better track your symptoms and give you some just more data and better ways to kind of handle your long COVID symptoms. So essentially they're working on their app right now. It's really all about managing this, this issue and um, it connects with your wearable devices and gives you really tailored insights on how to manage your long COVID. So it integrates with your Apple watch, for example. Um, And so not only does it kind of let you sort of track and make some detailed notes about how you're feeling, but then it can also help you kind of, um, pace your energy level. So if you're maybe overexerting yourself, the app is going to hopefully eventually tell you to, hey, cool it, slow it down. You need to kind of save your energy. So they're still building the app. It's not available yet, but um, they got a big boost. They raised about $500,000 in an early funding round from Drive Capital. Drive is a big Midwest-focused VC fund that's based in Columbus. So some uh, uh, early traction here for these guys and a nice check that's going to help them grow in the right direction. I don't know if I mentioned Jim Dalkey is the national editor at American Inno, and you can read his stuff at chicagoinno.com. I'll tell you, I think the holy grail for some of those long COVID sufferers, Jim, is lost of taste and smell. And it is a resource game. Like, who's doing a study? Is there an experimental process or drug in place? Where do I go? And so many people are just, you know, out in the woods trying to navigate this on their own. It didn't exist three years ago. Um, I don't know if this app, you know, has any hope for those people, but long COVID is probably going to be here for a long time. It's it, That's exactly right. Um, and I think this really is the first step in helping get folks, you know, access to the information they need and kind of helping them kind of collect data on what they're experiencing and track what's going on. And so, yes, you could definitely see down the road this app being kind of a full service tool to help get all the resources you need from your medication to additional resources and and so forth. But right now, really, they're kind of focusing on like, hey, let's let's do a really good job of of cataloging what's going on here. And hopefully we can give them some kind of immediate next steps to feeling better. Okay, so this comes out in March. It's an app, Jupiter DX, not RX as in a prescription, say, but DX, Jupiter DX and it's going to try and launch a beta version in March, huh? That's right. Yeah, and it's coming from actually a couple of former Northwestern students. So, uh, you know, they had um, you know started actually at, at another company called Summer Bio, which was a COVID testing startup. So their background definitely comes from the COVID universe, and really kind of saw an unmet need here, kind of tackling long COVID specifically. Bank of America is in your news. What's the story here? Yeah, Bank of America is uh, the latest investor in a local Chicago VC fund. So capitalized VC, uh, a new VC fund that launched back late 2021. It's led by Tessa Flippin. Um, 
she's really interesting investor. Uh, you know, she, I, to my knowledge, is one of the only, um, you know, black female solo venture capitalists in Chicago, really kind of leading her capitalized VC fund really by herself. Uh, it's raising $10 million and uh, it's got a, a nice chunk of change from uh, Bank of America is helping her get that uh, $10 million raised. And so, yeah, BOA, uh, a big investor now here. In the local fund, as this fund goes to invest in black and Latino founders in Chicago and elsewhere. So this is a really nice um, check for her. She continues to build out capitalized VC. Um, you know, we've talked a lot uh, on, on our Monday shows here that there are a lot of kind of like new emerging startup investors in Chicago that really want to change the face of Chicago tech for long. Um, it was very difficult for, for folks of color. Uh, and women to get those early funding checks in Chicago and and uh, VC funds like Capitalized VC are really looking to change that. Mm. Talk about Green Light Fund then. Yeah, Green Light Fund. So this is a you know a new nonprofit that's based in Boston that goes um, to different cities and raises money from you know local business leaders, local philanthropic folks um, to solve some of the city's biggest issues. And so. Uh, Greenlight Fund announced that their latest city is Chicago. That's going to be the 12th city they've gone to. And they're going to um, commit about $6 million to Chicago over the next five years um, to help solve, quote, uh, some of Chicago's biggest problems. What are those problems exactly? Well, they are still figuring that out. So the, the line of work that they're going to be in specifically is not totally determined, but in some other cities that they've worked on, some, some issues that they've helped kind of figure out are, you know, around homelessness, affordable housing, education, public safety, workforce development. So they're going to be working on um, figuring out exactly what they're going to be using that $6 million for. But folks who invested in that in that um, fund include some big names like the Obama Foundation, um, McKinsey Scott, uh, Bank of America, Goldman Sachs. So some big names are investing in that to really kind of help determine what exactly they're going to be tackling here in Chicago. But it's a program that's worked, you know, really well. They've been in San Francisco, for example, and helped kind of create this meal delivery uh, service for folks in need, ended up delivering meals to about 15,000 families over a, a two-year span. So uh, t- TBD on exactly what issues they're going to tackle in Chicago, but some big names are, are putting some money behind this effort to kind of can, uh, really boost Chicago. Education, crime, employment, $6 million ain't going to get it done. Um, (laughs) uh, Is it that they're going to research it or are they actually going to try and affect some change? Yeah, so, I mean, really it's the affecting some change. So in in, in San Francisco, for example, they helped... Um, distribute more than 130,000 meals, worked with uh, about nine different community partners, reaching about 15,000 individuals from 2020 to 2021. So, um, yes, it is a uh, small some, uh, chunk of change, certainly, but really what they're looking for is, is me- measurable impact. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, when they, the way they measured that in San Francisco, for example, was meals delivered. And so certainly they're going to be looking to determine what in Chicago um, they're, they're going to focus on. They are hiring actually currently a uh, executive director to run a Chicago operation. So that's a, a need that they're going to be looking to fill here so, so, uh, soon before they get off the ground. But um, yeah, certainly, I mean, uh, you know, what, what they say is that um, it's their Chicago operation here is going to be their largest to date with more than 100 local supporters. Uh, it's going to be their biggest fund so far. So a TBD on exactly what they tackle, but it'll be definitely one to watch. Indeed. Well, uh, we'll take whatever help we can get. Jim Dalkey is the national editor at American Inno. You can read more at chicagoinno.com. Nice to hear your voice today, Jim. Thanks for the help. Thanks, John. 
Let's continue with the business news on the Wintrust Business Lunch and Steve Grzanich. Start your timer. It's time for the Wintrust Business Minute, sharing Chicago's business news of the day. There are two CEO changes in Chicago. Edward Waymer is stepping down as chief executive at Wintrust Financial. The change in leadership will happen at the end of April. He'll continue as director and serve as executive chairman through the middle of 2024. He'll then transition to founder and senior advisor. Wintrust says Timothy Crane will begin as the bank's new CEO in May. He's been serving as president. President. In a statement, Waymer says the last 31 years exceeded his wildest expectations when he and colleagues opened the first Wintrust Bank in 1991. He says he's grateful for the opportunity to have created something special at Wintrust, a true community bank, which has flourished. Chicago Sun-Times CEO Nikea Wright has left the company after five years with the news organization. News of her departure coincides with the one-year anniversary of Chicago Public Media's acquisition of the newspaper. The statement announcing her departure did not give a reason for her leaving. Wright began with the Sun-Times in 2017 and has been its CEO since 2020. I'm Steve Grzanich, and that's your Wintrust Business Minute. We've got the business of food and Steve Alexander. Yep, and we're sponsored by the Chevy Silverado HD. Experience life in HD. Visit ChevyDriveChicago.com. I need a little help from Mr. Surratt on this one. Well, in fact, I'm stealing his bit. Listen closely. Name this TV theme. Oh, I know, I know. It's Yellowstone. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, a little too easy, perhaps, for one of the hottest shows on TV right now. And when the National Cattlemen's Beef Association meets in New Orleans this week, the creator and writer of Yellowstone will be on stage. We're excited about having Taylor Sheridan there. Don Schiefelbein is a Minnesota cattle rancher and president of the NCBA. And if you're thinking that a Hollywood TV and movie creator is a strange choice to be a speaker to a herd of cattlemen and women, well, Taylor Sheridan is not a case of all hat and no cattle. He's as close to one of our own as we will ever get you know when you own the four sixes ranch uh, jumping in to note that the four sixes is a two hundred sixty thousand acre historic ranch in texas that sheridan paid over 300 million dollars for about a year ago you got to have a little cattleman in you you know what i mean and sheridan also has a thousand acre horse ranch in texas so he knows ranching and he includes some of the current issues facing agriculture in episodes of yellowstone from wolves attacking cattle to endangered species and wild and eminent domain to get out our storyline and what we need average joe american to hear boy it's it's impressive what he's done and here's a sign of how the popularity of yellowstone is changing the conversation about ranchers when schiefelbein travels he wears his cowboy hat and before yellowstone people sitting next to him on a plane would ask are you from texas But since Yellowstone, it's amazing how often Montana surfaces now. And a big beneficiary of Yellowstone is the Western wear business. Western sales have gone up uh, in excess of 30% across the country. He'll be chatting with Taylor Sheridan on stage at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association Convention this week in New Orleans. From the farm to your belly, today's National Croissant Day, or do you say croissant? or Crescent Roll. That's the business of food on 720 WGN. It's a give and take these days. Who's got the the leverage, the employers or the employees? Our next guest is Andreas Laris, who is the managing partner at Shapiro Negotiations Institute. He co-authored Persuade, the four-step process to influence people and decisions. Andreas, it's Sean Williams. Welcome to WGN. Good afternoon. Who's got the power right now? Uh, is it better to be an employer or employee, would you say? 
Well, we're right in between the shifts, but I would say it went from uh, clearly in the employee side to headed very much in the employer side, but not all the way there. Well, we all thought that the last couple of years, employers were doing anything they could to get employees in, including offering bonuses or giving them more dollars per hour, which some of us thought was long overdue. But maybe that's starting to shift now, huh? That definitely is. And depending on what industry you're in, you're seeing it more or less. But but clearly, from a macro perspective, it is moving in that direction. So then your angle is, okay, then what does the prospective employee do to get the best deal possible? Is that what we're talking about? Exactly. And so part of it is being realistic of those macroeconomic conditions, but it isn't necessarily that it's hopeless. So there still is a chance and there's a few things you can do in order to increase your chances. Give me some examples. So... I mean, the first is obviously you've got to you got to ask for it, but in order to ask for it, you have to come prepared. So as it shifts over to less of an employee's market, the burden is a little bit higher for you to really make sure that you have enough value you bring to the table. So the one really easy suggestion we make is to script it out. So it can be a daunting task to make that ask. We're talking and about so, asking for a raise here, right? Asking for a raise, correct? Yeah, so you got to ask for it, and and now a raise also can mean more than just salary, but we'll probably get there in a minute. But asking for a raise, so script it out, and then actually kind of practice it either with a, a spouse, a friend, uh, in front of the mirror, whatever it takes in order to make you more confident, because that'll make the biggest difference. Do you have any ideas for what should be in that little script? I presume not just I'm due for a raise, but here's how I've added value to the company. Here's how I'm increasing sales. Do you need to sort of make sure you you have those talking points in there? Absolutely. And what I love about even your brief examples are they're forward looking as well, right? So although past, past performance is the best predictor for future performance, it really is about what will you do for me, not necessarily what have you done for me. And so it's really important communicating value. There should be some succinct points on what you bring to the table and why it is that you merit at a time where potentially some other folks are being downsized, a raise, which is not unconscionable, but it is something that you really need to be very articulate with a, a few points of what you will deliver in the future. Give me another idea, another strategy to bring into that room. So another strategy is you, you really, it's kind of counterintuitive. Most folks think, okay, I'm going to ask for a raise. So I'm going to focus on that because I don't want to ask for too much. I don't want to ask for too many things. But it's actually the opposite. If you only ask for a raise, an increase in salary, then you're really at a fixed sum negotiation. For every dollar they pay you more, it's $1 less in their margins. And so you actually want to bring to the table a few different requests. And it could be title, uh, 401k contributions, you know, expensing costs, paid time off, whatever it could be, other aspects. And so that allows you to kind of trade the areas that are least important to them and most important to you and vice versa. So it can be counterintuitive, but certainly a really important recommendation. Should you be willing then to accept in lieu of a raise, uh, more time off or a better contribution or some other perk? Well, that's the first question that I can't give you an exact answer to because it depends on so many variables. But definitely, I mean, one other aspect we would add in, in response to that and in general to recommend to folks is having empathy. And what I mean by that is being aware of the macro situation and also being aware that the person in front of you, whether it's your boss or head of HR, whoever you're negotiating with, may want to give you that raise, but there may be other factors yeah. that either potentially slow it down. And so having empathy and kind of putting yourself in their shoes that will change the way you approach it with them, and that will significantly increase your probability of getting a raise and also 
continuing a good relationship. Should I come in and ask for a specific amount, though? Ah, that's a good question. So there are some scenarios where you want to do that in order to anchor. Generally, though, because this is such a sensitive relationship, it's you know your your employment is can be sensitive depending on who you're negotiating with. We typically will recommend that the first go, you ask for a raise, you communicate all of the value you bring to the table, but you put the ball in their court on what that raise may be. And the reason is it can be sensitive. Folks can, it can find it very difficult to make that big ask because they're afraid that if the ask is too big, essentially it may damage the relationship. So in order to kind of try to hedge both, it'd be a combination of here's the value I bring to the table. I believe I'm due for a raise. What do you think? That kind of approach. How can you tell if they are in a position to, in fact, give you a raise? Well, that's challenging. So, of course, what happens is even in the, you know, the, the, if you're a shrewd negotiator, even if you do potentially have the ability to provide someone a raise, you wouldn't just immediately in that first conversation say, yes, you know, absolutely. That 10% <laughs> yeah. you asked for, yeah. here it is, right? Yeah. So, you know, it's not going to happen. And so I say that, of course, we both laugh, but the reality is you do have to remember that. And so there's a phrase that we like to say, which is negotiation is a process and not an event. And I think this more than anything is something you want to remember. That raise probably will not come in that first meeting that you have. So you want to be patient. You want to be empathetic. doesn't mean you can't be asking for what you believe you deserve. Right. But you want to take it kind of slowly. And so if you remember it's a negotiation, it's a process, not an event, you will sort of kind of see the process through. And so it may not be in the first meeting you know for sure whether it can happen or not. It may take multiple meetings and some time in between. Andres Laris is the managing partner at Shapiro Negotiations Institute. He's the co-author of Persuade, the four-step process to influence people and decisions. More at ShapiroNegotiations.com. Andres, nice to talk to you. Very interesting stuff today. Thank you very much for having me. I hope it helps everyone.